0: Amen. Take your Bible and find Luke chapter 15, beginning at verse 20. Now, I said again, last week was truly a blessing. I was greatly refreshed and encouraged by Revive Weekend. I hope you were also. But today we go to Luke chapter 15, verse 20, as we resume the series entitled Jesus' Parables: Wisdom for Life. Two weeks ago in this parable, we saw a father with two sons. The younger son is a rebel. He wants what the father has, but he does not want who the father is, so he demands to get his inheritance early. He wants a third of the father's assets. He wants the father to liquidate them, and he wants them now. Now, this is the son we call the prodigal, so he gets his inheritance, gathers up his money, and goes to a distant country. The King James Version calls it the far country. It's a country where His father's influence isn't felt. In fact, his name isn't even mentioned. And the son goes to the far country and wastes all that he has in what the Bible calls loose living. So rock bottom, impoverished and hungry. Verse 17 of this chapter says he came to his senses. And verse 19 says he decided to go to the father and tell him, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. I'll work for you. Now, he's in the process of repenting, but as we said two weeks ago, he has three wrong assumptions. Number one, that he has to work to get his father's approval. Second, he believes he has the ability in his flesh to get the father's approval. And third, he apparently assumes that he'll never be able to be considered his father's child and it is here we can confuse the point of this parable because the point of this parable is not man he made a mess of his life and if you don't stop it and start to live morally you're going to be broke and hungry too and you'll hit rock bottom that's not the point what if the son had spent his money well in the far country and engaged in industrious living that he found a prosperous vocation the story wouldn't be, well, he's a good boy. He he rebelled for a while, but he made something of himself, and we're so proud of him. The problem is he had a heart of rebellion against the father. In fact, the truth is, while this is called the parable of the prodigal son, the central point of this parable isn't about him. And it's not about his brother that we're going to look at in a few moments. It's about the father. And not only will the father receive this prodigal son upon his repentance, he will do so with such joy that all of heaven rejoices with him. And that's where we pick up this morning. Look with me at Luke chapter 15. We're going to jump in the middle of the story, verse 20. It says, so he, referring to the prodigal, he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him. And ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you've never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said, Son... You have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Now, two weeks ago, we talked about a lost son living loosely. Here's the second point. It's a gracious father loving fully. Look again at verse 20. This son got up and came to his father. We need again to go back to verses 1 and 2 to see who Jesus was telling this parable to. Verse 1 says tax collectors and sinners came to listen to him. Jesus said take care how you listen. So the tax collectors and sinners came to listen. But verse 2 says the Pharisees and scribes came basically to grumble, to criticize. So as Jesus gets to verse 20 in this story... If you just consider Jewish tradition, the Pharisees would expect him to say, the father rejected that son, his servants sent him away, the townspeople uh, shunned him, he needed to be punished for his rebellion against the father. So if the father was merciful, after he decided the son experienced enough humiliation, he might allow him on his property, but he would have a little ceremony where he would officially slap him and then the son would have to continually grovel to prove himself. Rabbis then taught that repentance was a work you stayed at until that wrong was righted, however long, that right, uh, however long that might take. So the son would work and work and work, but he could never repay the third of the assets that he wasted, and he could never again regain the status of being a son. The Pharisees had the father all wrong. And it's here the father becomes the focus. And first, notice a shocking reception. Keep reading in verse 20. But while the son was a long way off, his father saw him. For the father to see him from a long way off, it meant he was watching. His son is not dead to him as it would be with a typical Jewish father. Instead, he's hopeful, even expectant. And then it says he was filled with compassion. That word means to experience a deep visceral feeling it means more than sympathy it means taking action to alleviate someone's plight this is the view God has toward a repentant sinner his heart is for the lost to come to Christ to be saved and verse 20 says this father ran and threw his arms around his neck and kissed him the pharisees would have been scandalized First, Jewish fathers didn't run. It was undignified for the patriarch of the family to look weak. Second, he would have had to gird up his robe to run. Exposing a man's legs then was considered shameful. The son is the one who sinned. He needs to come crawling. But I want you to take your Bible and turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 21, the fifth book in the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 21 for a moment because it very likely contains what the ultimate reason was that the father ran to the son. So Deuteronomy chapter 21, I'll give you a moment to turn there. The fifth book in the Bible. Now remember, children were to honor their parents. And Deuteronomy 21, verse 18, when you get there, Deuteronomy 21, 18 explains what should be done if they did not honor their parents. Deuteronomy 21, verse 18 as Monty said last week, the greatest sound in the world to a pastor is the sound of pages turning. Deuteronomy 21:18 it says, If any man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother, and when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them, then his father and mother shall seize him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gateway of his hometown. They shall say to the elders of his city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death. And so you shall remove the evil from your midst, and all Israel will hear of it in fear. Your son will not listen to us. He's stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. That is a description of that son. The father might have been doing more than welcoming the son. He might have been ensuring his safety. Warren Wearsby points out that this makes the father an object of shame. The father took the shame that should have fallen on the son, shame that always accompanies sin. The father took it on himself. He took it away from his child, which is what Jesus did for you on the cross. The father ran to him. That's a shocking reception. But next, we see a full reconciliation. Now, for reconciliation to ever happen, the guilty party has to confess guilt. That's why you so seldom see reconciliation. Verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned. There's the ownership of sin. He accepted full responsibility. In the Garden of Eden, Adam began his so-called confession by saying, this woman you gave me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Reconciliation cannot take place until the guilty party, to use today's vernacular, owns his sin. This is a picture of true confession. When you confess your sin, biblical confession means to agree with. Confession means you're agreeing with God that either your actions or your attitudes, your words, thoughts, and deeds, they are indeed sin. So repentance starts with the ownership of sin, but then there's also the offense of sin. Look at verse 21 of Luke 15. He said, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. Now, he sinned against his brother, any extended family. He sinned against his town, and he sinned against the people he ran with in the far country. But the ultimate direction of his sin and ours is toward God. King David committed adultery with Bathsheba. He caused the death of her husband Uriah, yet in Psalm 51, that amazing psalm of confession and repentance, he said to God, against you and you only, I have sinned. He sinned against these other people, but the ultimate direction of his sin was against God. So he understands the ownership of sin, and he understands the offense of sin, but then I want you to notice something in verse 21. This is the consequence of sin. He said, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Well, in Jewish culture, that was true. What we need to understand is that before Christ, we're never worthy of being called the father's son or daughter. But the beauty of the grace of God is seen in what this son does not understand and oftentimes what people do not understand. Look at verse 19. He said, Make me like one of your hired workers. Well, hired workers were day workers. They, they were lower than slaves. They depended upon daily food for work. So this is his response to the father. I'll work for you. I, I know I'm not worthy to be called your son. Verse 22, the father said to the slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and let, bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. Instant Sonship. He immediately accepted him as his child. No probation period. No, we'll see if you're really repentant. We're going to take some time to see if you get your act right. It's instant acceptance. This is a glorious picture of how a person who comes to Jesus in repentance and by faith seeking forgiveness is reconciled to a holy God. Warren Wearsby, I'll quote him again. He said, In the far country, The prodigal learned the meaning of misery, but back home, he discovered the meaning of mercy. This is God in Christ reconciling the sinner to himself. Look again at verse 22. It says, a father said, bring out the robe. That more than likely would have been the father's robe. Jewish patriarchs had a robe that signified their status. In a very real sense, he imputes this robe to his son. It points us to Jesus who gives us his righteousness. Then verse 22 says, put a ring on his finger. This was probably his signet ring. Documents then were sealed by wax. You dipped the signet ring in the semi-hardened wax. It denoted authority. Wearing the ring meant he was officially part of the family. And then it says, put sandals on his feet. Slaves went barefoot. Guests removed their sandals when entering a home, but the owners of the house wore sandals. This is all a picture of how Jesus receives repentant sinners. No condemnation about our past. Complete acceptance in the presence and his wonderful promise for the future. So there's full reconciliation, but we're not done yet. Because next comes great rejoicing. Look at verse 23. And bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat, and celebrate. God in heaven rejoices when a lost person comes to Jesus. Who initiated the celebration? The Father did. Now, as the first person of the Trinity, God the Father experiences perfect joy. He experienced that before mankind was created. He does not need us to experience joy. Yet the Bible says he experiences joy when one lost sinner repents. This is good news, folks. Smile at me. Let's make two applications. Some of you have children like the prodigal. They're off in the far country, and you wonder if there's any hope. I read a story several years ago about a teenager who got into drugs, and he was in and out of treatment centers for 20 years, The mother and father prayed for him daily. One day, he called and said, I'm going to kill myself in a cemetery. Well, they didn't know where it was, so there was nothing they could do. He actually went to a friend who owned a repair shop. He slept that night on the dirty, cold floor in the middle of winter, and just like in verse 17, after 20 years, he came to his senses. He went back to his parents' Repented, confessed Jesus as Lord. With great joy, the mother and father received him. And the father said, God is restoring the 20 lost years. We've had some of the most wonderful spiritual conversations we've ever had. If you have a child who is not saved, keep watching and waiting and praying and preaching. It may seem hopeless, but God can make anyone come to their senses. And I'm telling you, if he made me come to my senses, he can do it for your child too. Application number two is very simple. If you've never repented and put your faith in Jesus Christ, then do it right now. Right where you sit. And Jesus will not only save you, heaven will rejoice over you. So we have a lost man living loosely, a gracious father loving fully. Number three, a lost man living religiously. Now, remember the context, verse 2. The Pharisees did not come to listen. They grumbled about him trying to reach sinners. What they're going to find out is that this brother Jesus is about to describe, he's talking about them. The older brother is nothing like the prodigal. He's morally upright. He's consistently faithful. He's outwardly obedient, but he had one thing in common with his brother. He was lost. Now, how do we know the older brother was lost? Well, here's a start. When you, as a Christian, when you see someone saved, when you see their obedience, when they follow Jesus in believer's baptism, when you see that Christ has made someone a new creation, what's your response? I mean, you applauded for these baptisms. You rejoice. You're glad. It gives God glory. It raises up hope. What does this son do when his lost brother is found? He has a hateful response. Look at verse 25. Now, the older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry. Angry? That's the response of a Pharisee. They hated sinners. They hated Jesus for loving sinners. He mixed with what they viewed was as the dregs of culture, the outcast, the leper, the blind, the maimed. The law said those people were unclean. So the Pharisees weren't about to get near them. And they went beyond Scripture, which is always dangerous territory. They bought an old lie of the devil. They didn't invent this. They said that if a person was diseased or sick or poor... It was because of their sin or their father's sin, so they condemned these people. The Pharisees carefully followed religious rules that they created. You couldn't tie what they believed to Scripture, but in their zeal, they believed they were the only ones following Scripture. For example, they tithed. Now, they were under the law, so that's what they were supposed to do. But they tithed mint and dill and cumin, plants from the ground that's extremism no scripture hints at that they carefully observed all the feasts they offered sacrifices they prayed twice a day they fasted they followed the rules that they created or less they thought they followed the rules they created rules they stacked them on top of rules their forefather created and I'll give you an example of this the fourth commandment says remember the sabbath to keep it holy you shall not do any work Now, that's not hard to understand, but in their zeal, their Pharisaism, they said, well, what does the word work mean? And so they extrapolated all sorts of theories about what God meant by work, and they created rules that went so far that it resulted in them criticizing Jesus for healing a man on the Sabbath. They said it was work. They were so obsessed with their dogma, they didn't care about human beings, but they believed they were pleasing God. They wielded their dogma as weapons of conformity against people. You know, life's pretty hard. People in the trenches don't need burdens laid upon them. People who have PTSD or troubled kids Their parents, single moms, people battling inflation, which is every one of us. Government encroachment, anxiety, depression. They don't care about the finer points of something that someone is trying to lay upon them. They're trying to make it to tomorrow. And they need hope. And they need to hear that they live in a real world, that we are real people, and there is a real Jesus who came to save them. They need to know that he will change their heart. He will change their desires so they want to follow his will. They need to know, listen, they need to know that God doesn't hate them. He loves them. He sent his son to die for them, and if they will trust in his son Jesus, they will find that Jesus is the best way to live, and being in him is the only way to die. So if you've never heard this before, hear it now. God has a heart for you. The son is mad because the father has a heart for his repentant brother. So the natural result is a hateful response, but it gets worse. There's a hypocritical response. Look at verse 29. He said to his father, for many years I have been serving you. He thinks he's deserving because of his work for the father. And then he said in verse 29, I have never neglected a command of yours. Well, let, if we went back and examined that, we would find that was untrue probably the first day. But that's the illusion of legalism. It reeks of pride. And there's, there's always, there's, there's, this has never changed from the time Jesus rose. There are churches that are filled with this, with these, with these harsh forms of treating people. And today we see spiritual abuse. We see the stories of sexual abuse. And now a very unfortunate term has entered our lexicon And it's called deconstructing. There's a lot that's written about this. And I'm kind of simple-minded. So here's what I want to say to you. Don't deconstruct your faith. If it's ebb low, reconstruct your faith. And we want to help you do that. I met a young woman a month ago in this exact situation. She told me she went to the elders of her church with a problem. And she was told she wasn't praying enough and wasn't submitting to her husband enough. And anyway... It almost took her faith down, and she said, I started to deconstruct. Praise God she escaped that, and her faith is well today. Now, maybe you're in that situation today. Jesus never, never condemns what the Bible calls a bruised reed or a smoldering wick. Don't walk away because of someone else's Pharisaism. Don't walk away. If you've been mistreated, don't walk away. Walk toward Jesus. He will heal your heart. This brother is caught up in the illusion of legalism. I've never neglected a command. But he's not only caught up in the illusion of legalism, he's caught up in the delusion, the delusion of the loss. What's that delusion? My works are good. I'm a good person. I've done a lot for you, Father. And there's a very revealing question that every person should answer. Now, many of you have heard this, but some of you haven't. If you died and stood before God, and by the way, this is purely hypothetical. It won't happen this way. If you stood before God and he said, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? Now, I've read some things. There's a harsh answer that says if your answer starts with anything you do, that's wrong. Number one. Folks can be a Christian who's new in the faith and get this wrong. I would have when I was new in the faith. You can even be around for a while and still get this wrong. I mean, you might get it wrong because it's the way it's it's phrased. It can be a little tricky unless you clearly think about it. But please hear me. If you do get this wrong, be sure you leave here today understanding the right answer. Now, lost people always get this wrong. If you stood before God and he said, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? Most people would say just what this brother said. Well, I'm, I should go to heaven because I'm a good person. Uh, I, I try to do good things. I help people. I try hard to be good. I'm kind. I'm a, I'm a good neighbor. Those are tragically wrong answers. The only answer is this, because Jesus died on the cross to forgive my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. So by faith in Jesus and his finished work on the cross, his work, not mine, he saved my soul. That's the answer. The son would have said, because I served you and I never neglected a command. That's what the son would have said. What is your answer? Did you get the answer close to being right? Now, I have to be honest with you, if you answer like this son, it could be that you're lost like this son. Because to be saved, you have to repent of the idea that you're good enough to get to heaven. And you might say, you know what, I I don't think I agree with that. I mean, I see like what Hamas is doing, and I see people forced into slavery around the world and all these terrible things, and I've lived a moral life. You know, as I went over this sermon yesterday, I thought of a guy... I knew who was a delight to talk to. And he was a very moral and upright man. I shared the gospel with him a couple times. The last time, it was in a parking lot in this town, not ours. It was in a parking lot. And he would say to me, he said to me more than once, one of these days I need to come see you, preacher, and that's what he told me this day. And I said to him, you better do it before it's your last day. And he laughed, and he never did, and he died, and I don't know anything about him. The son believed he was morally better than his brother. He was right. The son, however, thinks what he did was good enough. But notice, he doesn't even have any fellowship with the father. His fellowship is with his own set of friends. Verse 29, you've never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. Sounds like a little kid. Jesus was talking about the Pharisees here. He once said of them they only associate with themselves. So in verse 30, he says to this father, this son of yours, not my brother, no, this guy is your problem, but he just identified himself as not part of the family. And verse 30 also more than likely reveals his real motive. He said, this son of yours who devoured your wealth, which probably means he lessened my inheritance. Now what's so scary about religious hypocrisy is that it gains momentum. Religious hypocrites tend to surround themselves, only associate with religious hypocrites. And sure enough, the Pharisees grow darker, they get so far away from God that they eventually plot murder, and it culminates at Calvary where they lead the way in crucifying Jesus. So we've seen a lost man living loosely, a gracious father loving fully, a lost man living religiously, and a gracious father seeking Kindly. Look at the end of verse 28. The father came out and began pleading with him. That word pleading is a word pericaleo, to come alongside, to exhort. And in verse 31, he said, Son, you've always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. That is the patience of God toward sinners, even religious hypocrites. We often see the wild. Partying sinner, repent and be saved. I could raise my hand, and a lot of you could too, but how often do you see religious hypocrites be converted? Jesus condemned the Pharisees who believed in a creator God, a monotheistic God, a literal account of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses, Aaron, and Joshua, Elijah, and Elisha, Jeremiah. Isaiah and Ezekiel they believed in a bodily resurrection, but they apostatized into a legalistic theology of works righteousness and later Luke will say they trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt and Still the father is patient and in verse 22. He said we had to celebrate and rejoice. We had to celebrate. Why? Because heaven rejoices when one lost sinner is found So let me ask you a question. What did this older brother do? I would tell you to look at verse 33, but there is no verse 33. (laughs) Jesus stopped the story there. He didn't give us an ending, but right now you will. And that's because right now you and I are one of two people. You're either the younger brother who came to his senses, at some point, he realized he was far from the Father. He came to him by repentance. And today, you and the Father rejoice in your salvation. Or you're the older brother who thinks your life is good enough to get to heaven. And perhaps you've created your own theological system, your own view of God. And it's amazing that when people do that, that God always approves of my lifestyle he approves of my most closely held beliefs but like the Pharisees it's a terribly inaccurate view of God so here's what I want you to do this morning if you're saved rejoice right now it's going to get better folks it's going to get better I mean we have this survival instinct none of us want to die but it's going to get better Our lives are short, eternity is so long, so rejoice about your decided future. I got to take a little detour. I was reading, I made the mistake of reading the news yesterday. I'm not going to recite it to you, but I I thought, is the world always been like this, or is it just because we're so interconnected because of the internet? And, And I don't have the answer to that, but I do know this. Jesus is coming soon. And the only reason I know that is because the Bible tells me that. I'm not some prophecy guy that's going to say, oh, man, guess what? The, the temple's been rebuilt, and it's three stories beside the Dome of the Rock, and they're getting ready to blow up the Dome of the Rock. And <laughs> if, if Don't listen to that stuff, please. But always know that Jesus is on the precipice of coming again. One of these days I'm going to fall off and do this. I've done this before. The coming of Jesus is not walking toward a date. The coming of Jesus is like this. He always walks along the edge of eternity. And one day all he has to do is just take one step. It's always imminent. If you're not saved, the invitation to you is to be like that younger brother. Humble yourself. Turn away from your sins. Come to Jesus in repentance and faith. If you sense God drawing you to himself, there's something inside of you right now that's pulling you in, then don't resist that. Trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Talk to myself, Nathan, Kirk. Fill out a card, a QR code. We've given you a number of ways to communicate with us. Please do that because we want to help you take the next steps in the Christian life. Or if you have questions, any of us would love to have a conversation with you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for the way we can rejoice over our decided future. Thank you that you do. Receive us. Thank you that you do accept us, even when we get to the point where we think you would never possibly receive us because of our sin. You do that. Our sins are removed from us as far as the east is from the west, and that's because of your great grace. I pray for those who are saved that even if their circumstances are terrible this morning, that they would still be able to rejoice in their decided future and to recognize that all heaven rejoices with them. And for those who do not know you, Lord Jesus, I pray you would draw them to God. Thank you for the way you work in every life. And I pray it in Christ's name, amen. Well, church, would you stand with us as we sing?
1: He saves our His Delight Christ will hold me Fast Precious in His holy
0: church at Rome, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, as we depart from this place, let's go with boldness knowing that Christ will hold us fast. Yours, miss.